the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. No one wants to experience the downside of life But as sure as the sun rises each day, we will. We will lose a loved one, a child will move out, a job may be lost, and a breakup may occur. And when that happens, we have the opportunity to either let it defeat and define us or to transform and lift us. Today's guest, Rachel Hollis, has experienced fear, grief, loss, and betrayal. She is here today to talk about how to embrace the difficult moments of life. Rachel's work has focused on changing the way women approach their fears. Her new book is Didn't See That Coming. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, Joan, thank you so much for having me. So, Rachel, I have to tell you, when I was reading your book and when I was researching your work and how you've gotten to be on this journey that you're on, I really felt like I was looking in the mirror because everything that I'm doing and the work that I've built and and created is from the ashes of really traumatic experiences in my life. So I'm very excited about having you join us today because you've been able to turn your life experiences into life lessons. What put you on this path? What did you go through in life? Well, I had a pretty hard childhood. I had, um, I would say dysfunctional family, but I don't know if we were even functional at all. Parents who experienced a lot of um, of their own trauma growing up and sort of brought that then into the home with them, which happens quite often their relationship was really troubled. And then that kind of bled out into the rest of our family. So I grew up with a lot of, you know, screaming fights, holes being punched in the wall, you know, um, really a lot of fear, I guess I would say. I, I grew up as a little girl I can recognize now. And I spent most of my childhood sort of anticipating that um, something bad was about to happen. And when I was 14 years old, my older brother committed suicide and Mm -hmm. I found him. Mm -hmm. And that was um, whatever family there was, was decimated by that event. And so much of the person that I am now is truly the work of trying to come back to um, I guess there's no normal. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say normal, but trying to do the work to get healthy and become whole again after having gone through so much of that. Rachel, two years before I was born, my 14 year old brother passed away. So I understand what that does mm-hmm. to the dynamics of a family. And then I grew mm-hmm. up being the subservient good girl, trying to please everyone mm-hmm. because I didn't want my family to experience any more pain. And then I created this yep. life for myself where. I was the people pleaser. And fast forward 23 years into a marriage, I lost my sense of self, who I was. And in the trying to reclaim who I was, I changed the dynamics of our relationship. My husband didn't like it. We ended up having marital issues. While that was going on, my mother and sister both died within a period of six months. And so in Mm. six months in middle age, I lost my marriage. I lost my, my mother. I lost my sister. My son left for college. So I I so understand, and, and I'm sharing this with you and with the listeners, because I understand 
the root of where your work evolved from because mine was on a similar path. So you've written about all of, of these lessons that you've learned and, and you've really made it your mission to help other people who might be experiencing something similar. Can you share with us just some of the biggies, some of the things that you've really learned that you now use as a foundation for your life? Oh my gosh, what are what are my most favorites? Um, I think that probably the the most life changing moment that I in my adult life that I've ever experienced, I wrote about in Girl Wash Your Face, which was my first nonfiction book. Um, was I was at a conference and someone said this line that I will never forget. They said, or I guess they asked this question. They said, "What if life isn't happening to you? What if life is happening for you?" And if you were to believe that life is happening for you, then that has to mean that even the hard times, even the bad times, even the trauma, that there's something in it for you. And I felt like I had the answer to a question I had been asking for years because I really do approach my life and have approached my life this way for a very long time, but I didn't have the language for it. I would look back on, let's say, the loss of my brother, which was so awful, but I could see goodness in it. I could see that my empathy came from that experience. I could see um, the woman that I became because of that. And not to say that everything happens for a reason, because I hate that expression, but I do think it's possible to find meaning in everything that happens. Mm -hmm. So that was a profound experience was to really start to ask in every situation, how can this be for me? And I think that we're looking at that inside of 2020, right? Like some people will walk out of this year, will walk out of COVID and the crisis that that has brought upon us and will only see the hardship inside of this year. And yes, that's certainly true. This is the hardest year of my life, bar none. But in the hardest year of my life, I have grown closer to my kids. I've reclaimed so many things that I used to love and had stopped doing in the chaos of everyday life. I like I have I have gotten ownership back of so many pieces of me. So there was goodness in this too. I think that that is that is my biggest. Um, the biggest lens that I view my life through is how can this be for me? And that's the thing, Rachel, it's making that decision to see it through a different lens. As you said, I I can remember when my father was dying of lung cancer, we were getting close to him passing away. and And I went to seek counsel from my parish priest. And I remember him saying to me to look for the blessings in the situation. And to be honest, I was very angry at him because I thought, Are you kidding me? My father's dying and you want me to find a blessing? But what he meant was what you just said, where you place your attention, it it really determines the way you view the situation. So now when I look back at that time, those four months when my father was sick and I accompanied him to chemo and, and all of his treatments, he and I spent a lot of time together getting to know each other. I learned more about him in those four months than I had in all of my years living with him. So I treasure that now. As crazy as that sounds, I treasure the time when my father was sick because we had really valuable moments together. Like you just said, you're having with your family. And and that's just a choice that we make. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that it is, this is a practice that you have to put into play, right? Like most people don't, most people are not taught to view the world through this lens. But if you challenge yourself every day to be looking for those moments, to be looking for the blessing in a situation, then it teaches you to start doing it without conscious thought, which is so powerful. I mean, you know, what, 20 years ago, Oprah told us all that we needed a gratitude practice. Mm -hmm. And I remember as a little girl watching that show and starting, literally, I have journals from when I was 12, where I started doing a gratitude practice. And it is still very much a huge component of my life and work. And because I do this every single day, I'm able to live in this place where I am looking constantly for the blessing. So it's what I see. Rachel, you teach women to stop defining themselves in the light of other people. And as I told you, that's what I've done basically for my entire adult life. You believe that there are excuses that we tell ourselves to justify our behavior. 
What are some of these excuses that you think can govern our lives? I think one of the biggest excuses or the biggest lies that women, most women are raised to believe is that you have to please others in order to have love. Um, And I don't think that it's sort of put into those terms. That's not something anyone ever told me as a little girl. But I was absolutely raised to believe that I needed to look a certain way, act a certain way, speak a certain way in order to make everybody else around me comfortable and in order to feel like I was succeeding as a person. So often women are defined based on their relationship to others. So if you're a good mom for your kids, if you're a good wife for your partner, if you're a good daughter, if you're a good sister, then you're good. And you said this earlier, Joan, you know, you had this experience where you were inside of a marriage and you felt like you had sort of lost yourself, which is something that happens to so many women because you spend so much time trying to figure out what would make other people happier, what would make other people think that you are good, that you are right, that you are the way that you're meant to be, that you forget what it is that you even like or care about. And if you unpack the why behind that, if you really sort of get deep down, what it comes down to is that people pleasers believe that if they aren't pleasing, then they won't have love. And I, in a lot of my work and a lot of my personal therapy, got to this place in my life where I thought, you know what, because I am a, oh my gosh, I am a recovering people pleaser. Like I could be the queen of the people pleasers. But I got to a place where I thought, okay, Rachel, if your fear is that at at your core, even if it's subconscious, that you are not going to be loved, then you have to live your life in a way where you, you personally are so filled with love. You are so filled with love for yourself and you are so filled with love for others that it doesn't matter if they love you back. Because if you generate love, then you will always have love. If you have that within yourself, then you don't need to seek it out in negative ways from other people. So that was a huge, huge lesson for me. And one of the things I get, it's funny, my work, I'm not totally sure why, but my work tends to be very polarizing. People either love me or they hate me. And so one of the questions that I get a lot when I do interviews is people will say, you know, how do you deal with the negative feedback? How do you deal with people who don't like you? How do you deal with people who think you're too positive? How do you deal with these things? And I always think it's funny that so many journalists want to ask that question. And for the longest time, I was like, what is the deal? And then I realized it's because people want to know. They're like, no, literally tell me how to stop caring so much what the world thinks. And if you can ground yourself and if you can ground your work In the right place, which I believe is a place of love and wanting to create and wanting to put goodness out in the world, I don't care what anyone says about the work because I am not doing the work for the accolades. I'm not doing the work for the the masses. I am doing the work because I believe that, honestly, um, we're, we're going real deep now, Joan, but I'll just tell you that my prayer for the last 10 years with everything I do, with the books that I write, with keynote speeches that I give, with the podcast, all of it, my prayer is always the same. God, give me just one person. Give me just one person. If one person's life is made better, if one person gets an idea, if one person feels hope, if one person changes their perspective because of something I created, then my life's work is worth it. And if that is the bar, then I'm untouchable then I cannot care of the opinions of strangers on the internet because they're not what I'm chasing. That's exactly how all of this started for me. And, you know, you talk about going deep. When I had that moment, when I looked in the mirror and I had no idea who was looking back at me, I truly believe that my husband would want to support me because he would want me to be happy. And that just wasn't Mm -hmm. the case in my life. And at some point I had to make the decision, do I go back to being that subservient, people-pleasing woman that he wanted me to be, or do I try to figure out what I want and what I need? And for whatever reason, I couldn't go back. I knew I would, something would die within me if I went back. Mm -hmm. And so I moved forward and I created the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life brand simply because I didn't want another woman to feel the way I felt. I had no idea what I was doing. I, I This is the craziest thing I've ever done. 
But it all came from, like you're saying, that one moment where it was like, I can't go back to that. I need to figure this out. And I thought, well, you know, I'm a good communicator. I'll be a conduit of information. And, you know, I'll connect people like you with people who are looking for the types of answers you can provide. And and that's really where all of this came from. So when I tell you I understand everything you're saying, and you are so right and so on the mark with what you're saying, that I, I'm really happy you're here to be sharing this today. <laughs> it's like an amen sister. <laughs> yes. Now let's get back to giving something practical. If someone says to you, because we're talking about the, you know, I just knew I had to do it and I went and did it. Let's give somebody a practical tool, someone who's stuck, who might be seeing herself in your story or my story or or whatever we're saying here today. How can that person take the first step to reclaiming an identity or building the type of life he or she may really want? So this is such a good question because oftentimes people read a book, listen to a podcast, watch a YouTube video, and they get inspired to make change. They get super inspired and they do all the research and they have all the ideas. And sometimes just in that space, they will talk themselves out of stepping forward because in trying to figure out what to do, they're overwhelmed with too many possibilities. Or maybe they get the possibilities and they're like, nope, I know where I'm going. This is the thing I'm going to do. And they set out on Monday morning and they try and do all the things and they feel so overwhelmed. So my best advice is that you should start with an area of tension in your life and just tackle that one thing. There's a great book, one of my favorites, I recommend it all the time, called The One Thing by Gary Keller. And it's about this idea of we have all these desires of what we want to do in our life or with our business. What's the one thing that you could do that would push you further than the other? And so if you focus on one thing, if you put all your energy into one thing, you will get insane traction than if you tried to pursue 12 things at a time, which is what most people try and do. So you look for an area of tension, meaning what is something in your right now, in your day-to-day life that feels hard? Like, is there, man, getting the kids out the door to school, or it feels really hard to remember to pay all the bills on time, or it feels really hard to tackle this thing in my life. Well, start with that thing, start with that tension and figure out how to just make that one piece better. Because if you have something that occurs every single day that feels difficult and you find a way to work through it, you come up with a process, you navigate around it, whatever you have to do, and suddenly that tension's gone, the results and the way that frees up your mind to focus on other things is exponential. It's it's crazy how much taking care of one daily piece of tension can affect your whole life. And once you tackle that one task, then you look for the next area of tension. And once you tackle that one, then you look for the next. And you get to a place where you feel like every single day you're really effectively showing up in the way that you want to. So I'll tell you for me, and I don't know if this will work for everybody, but for me, when I'm looking to implement a new daily practice, I give myself three weeks. So I don't know why I just, it's a good amount of time for me to really feel like that thing has stuck. So I give myself three weeks and I'm like, okay, for the next three weeks, we're going to do this one thing and we're going to see how that makes your your days and your weeks feel better. And then when that three weeks is up, assuming that that thing worked really well, I'm like, fantastic. We got a bomb new habit in our life. Now, what are we going to do for the next three weeks? And I just keep, you know, tweaking my days by sort of these tiny little inches. But the results of that are world-changing, truly. The book is Didn't See That Coming. If you'd like to get more information about Rachel and her work, you can visit didn'tseethatcominginewbook.com. And as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com, which stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, and sign up for the mailing list. Rachel, in about 30 seconds or less, very quickly, what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway? You, my takeaway is always the same. You are in control of what happens next. 
And if you want a better life, you're going to have to take ownership of how you make that happen. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How much can the right foods do for you? A lot more than weight control. The right foods can increase your energy, improve your outlook, and strengthen your body's natural defenses. What foods can do all that? Primo Health Solutions will show you using metabolic typing. This remarkable program lets your body tell you what it needs to work best. Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to PrimoHealthSolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best. Hi, this is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 Magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. today to talk about chronic disorganization and ADHD is Gail Gruenberg, the Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized, an award-winning professional organizing firm. Welcome, Gail. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. Gail, I know that you do a lot of work with people that are managing brain-based conditions. How does ADHD relate to chronic disorganization? What is happening in the brain of someone with ADHD? Well, ADHD is a brain-based condition that affects the nervous system in someone, and it mainly relates to executive function. So on a physical level, what happens in the brain of someone who is dealing with ADHD is there is a low level of a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. And norepinephrine works in conjunction with dopamine, which uh, helps control the brain's uh, reward and pleasure center. So if there's a, a dearth or a lack of enough of these neurotransmitters, someone might have some challenges in a few parts of their brain, like the prefrontal cortex, which is the center. It's like the concert conductor uh, for the brain governing executive function. Um, the limbic system, which it regulates emotions and attention. There is the basal ganglia, excuse me, which is how the brain communicates internally. And the reticular activating system, uh, which relays messages uh, throughout the brain. How does someone support the ADHD brain? What is the best approach? Well, I found that um, there's a saying, if you know one person with ADHD, then you know one person with ADHD. There are, in fact, three different kinds of ADHD in general, um, or we could say flavors or characteristics. Uh, one of them is the inattentive kind. Another is impulsive the impulsive kind, and there's hyperactivity involved, and anyone could be anywhere on any of the spectrum. So for someone who is living with ADHD, finding the, the right mix of support to give that person enough uh, support, not to be uh, repetitive, to manage the ADHD is the best solution. And that could be creating organizing systems that are very simple, uh, very structured. There could be external supports like having uh, an accountability buddy or a, what we call a body double, all kinds of calendars. Many people make tons of lists and then there are always lots of lists all over the house and they lose their lists and make more lists and notebooks. So really um, delving into the specific type of ADHD that someone has could indicate the type of systems that would work best. I'm not always a, an advocate for medication, but sometimes in certain cases, there are certain medications that do work to help someone with ADHD focus, uh, and then that person is more likely to be able to create systems and maintain them. So let's talk in, in a little bit more specific terms. How does organizing help? Can you provide a few strategies that someone can implement right now that can help that person organize his or her life? 
Yes, absolutely. The first thing I would say is keep things as simple as possible. Um, when there is less to manage and, and deal with, then it's a whole lot easier to stay focused, create systems. I would say limiting as much as possible in one's life is the key, such as limiting social engagements, limiting projects that are taken on either personally or professionally. Have a great calendar system that works for that particular person's learning style. Some people with ADHD find that electronic calendars are exciting and stimulating um, because it um, it appeals to multiple excuse me multiple senses, uh, especially something that's tactile. Keep wardrobes to a minimum. When there's a lot of stuff, it can be very visually overwhelming, as well as anxiety. Uh, provoking to have to have a place for everything and have the right place. Perfectionism comes into play. I'm a big proponent of having, like I mentioned, a body double. Often people with ADHD can go through steps one, two, three, and four of a project or any kind of a process, but there is nothing that is going to get them to step five without some kind of what I call either a bridge or a raft and that could be an external non-judgmental friend or an organizer uh, or a family member. Well, these are all wonderful things. I mean, I know in my own life, Gail, I am the type of person, there's always so much going on in my mind. And it's very easy for me to do a little bit of a lot of things and not finish anything. So I am a list maker. I do a, a task list for the month. And then I break it down to the week. And then I break that down to the day. And I love to cross things off. And it keeps me on task. It keeps me focused. And it enables me to accomplish so much more than if I didn't have those lists. So I think that's a great point that you made. Thank you. I also am a list maker. And I don't plug products. But what I have found that works very nicely for myself is, in fact, a paper planner. It's called the Planner Pad. And it has a wonderful funnel system that does exactly what you explained. It goes from the bigger picture and it whittles it down to the much smaller uh, task-oriented time-framed to-do uh, on your calendar. So you can take these, these big goals that many people have and with ADHD. It can be um, there's some magical thinking in terms of how much can actually be accomplished in a lifetime mm -hmm. uh, and really whittles it down to at you know two o'clock in the afternoon on Friday, I'm going to do this. So, you know, it, it takes the big and makes it very tangible and manageable. Gail, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Gail and her work, you can visit her website, lgorganized.com. That's lgorganized.com. Gail, it's been a pleasure having you here. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being here. We'll be right back. Do you allow fear to stop you dead in your tracks whenever you think about trying something new? Does that voice in your head conjure up a list of reasons to be inactive while you shouldn't try to accomplish a goal? Hi, this is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. It's time to face your fears and step out of your comfort zone. For most of my life, I was that person, too afraid to take a chance, self-sabotaging myself at every turn. I had a reason for every roadblock that I built. I allowed fear to govern my life. It took a major life upheaval and a lot of soul searching to get me to change my ways. And when I did, I realized that I hadn't really lived. I played it safe and simply survived. Over the course of the past decade, I have had the opportunity to interview people that have inspired and challenged me to step outside of the comfort zone I called life. I met warriors who have overcome tremendous challenges and displayed courage that most can only imagine. They changed my way of thinking. Some of these people were born without arms and legs or feet or hands. Others have lost their vision or the ability to walk, and others have survived horrific trauma and now live their life in service to others. Every one of these people had every right to live in fear as they faced unfathomable challenges, but they all chose to confront their limitations and achieve what many would consider to be impossible. They understood that fear is nothing more than a mindset, a perception, false evidence appearing real. They taught me that each time we face our fears, we gain strength, courage, and confidence in the doing. So the next time you're faced with an overwhelming challenge, an opportunity to try something new, or the chance to step out of your comfort zone, how do you push fear aside and take action? First, 
Evaluate the driving force behind your fear. Is it a real consideration or something that you've created in your mind? Then make a list of your concerns and attack them one by one. Ask yourself, what is the worst thing that can happen? And by the way, it usually doesn't. Then develop a plan of action. What is your goal and how will you achieve it? Empower yourself with knowledge. And finally, muster up the courage to take a chance. The best plans are meaningless without action. As the explorer Christopher Columbus said, you can never cross the ocean until you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. Remember, it isn't the end result that matters. It's the journey. And you just may enjoy the ride. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiring tips, visit joanherman.com. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. My next guest, Emmy Award-winning medical journalist Dr. Bob Arnott, joins us to talk about traveling safely during the pandemic. Dr. Arnott was chief medical correspondent for NBC and CBS News. Welcome, Dr. Arnott. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, gentlemen, thanks for what a great public service you with uh, this terrific information. Well, you know, Doctor, you're right because it's so important that we get this information out to our listeners. There's no doubt that going on vacation or, or spending time with family can have a positive impact on a person's health and well-being, but with the pandemic, travel becomes much more challenging. So you're going to be giving us some very important information that I hope everyone listens to. What are some of the major risks that are associated with travel during this time? So, Joan, the biggest risks are going to be crowds and closed indoor spaces. Now that we believe that this is an airborne virus, what that means is it sits up in the air for minutes to hours. So if you go into a closed indoor space that's poorly ventilated, you know, you run a real risk if there's any COVID in there. So what I tell people is, you know, first of all, do wear a great quality mask. The CDC, as of about 18 hours ago, does have new guidance, and they say that you know, there's a gradation that not only are you preventing the virus from spreading people around you, but you can protect yourself. If you have a single-layer cotton mask, loosely woven, only 5% protection. If you go to triple layer, 50% or more protection. Surgical mask would be 67%. I wear there. This is called a, an Air Queen. It's an N95 substantial equivalent, and that gives me 97% protection. I bought uh, 1,500 of these for the local schools and bought them for friends and family. Uh, next, of course, spend the time and effort to distance and then get those six feet away. But recognize the distance alone, again, really won't help you if you are in a closed indoor space because that virus is just sitting there and lurking. So if you're going to have a dinner, despite the CDC's recommendation not to do so, uh, open the windows, open the doors, because most homes don't have ventilation and they'll be very high risk. Doctor, I want to go back to what you were saying about masks for a moment. Obviously, you know, that is the message we're trying to drive home, wear this mask. But many people don't really know the proper way to do so. How often the same one can be worn? How do we keep it clean? What are some of the things that we need to know in order to wear a mask properly and best protect ourselves and others? So, John, you're 100% correct. I see people wearing masks, you know, uh, over here, you know, over their forehead, underneath their nose. You know, the nose is the most likely place you're going to spread the virus from. And it's also a very likely place that you're going to, you know, contract the virus. You want to make sure it's nice and snug. And the way I tell once it's down underneath, beneath, beneath my chin, as I go, and I breathe in, if it stitches, I can see it's stuck in or like that. Then I know that it's properly fitted. Now, when you take it off, make sure you take it off by the straps. Because if you've been exposed to COVID, it's actually in the mask. So don't touch the front of that. You can wear them uh, for a day, you know, and then at the end of the day with these air queens, is a 75% ethanol spray. You spray it 30 times, uh, let it sit out, and after an hour, it's good to go. But a lot of people wear the same mask day in, day out. There's a tragic case of a 28-year-old doctor who wore the same mask for weeks, if not months, and they see died from COVID because there's just, you know, so much viral load there. So recognize they do need to be cleaned at least once a day. And if you have a substantial exposure, a big crowded room or a restaurant, you want to change it as soon as it's safe and you're back outside again. 
So, Doctor, two questions about masks. The first, uh, people would shoot me if I don't ask this because it's something I experience. I wear eyeglasses, and I notice anytime I go from outside to inside with the mask on, my glasses immediately fog up, and I know this is a problem a lot of people experience. Is there a trick? Is there something we could be doing to avoid that situation? So here's what I do. I wear glasses, and what I do is I get it nice and tight around my nose, and I can breathe in and out without actually fogging up my glasses. If you go too hard like that, of course, you could fog it up. But uh, I actually wear these mountain biking with my glasses, and uh, they're pretty good. Just make sure it's, it's, it's tight enough around you. These airplanes actually have a little metal piece in here that conforms around your nose and makes it tight here. So you wear that. You'd be just a little lower, but still over your nose here. And you should have pretty good luck with glasses. And, Doctor, the, the final mask question, for someone who's using one of those homemade or, or even store-bought cotton-type masks, are they able to just clean those properly by throwing them in the wash? Is that sufficient? Well, it's supposed to be. You know, if it's hot enough water, you could, of course, spray them with ethanol, too, afterwards to be, be super safe. But sure, washing them should be, should be a good move, but make sure you really do that. And, again, I would emphasize that, you know, if, if you look at a really good high-quality mask, these, these are $2 or less. They last for 10 days. So, you know, it's 20 cents a day to save your life, which is a small price to pay. Okay, so back to travel. How important is testing before and after traveling? Well, it's a tough question. And the reason is this, that if you're using the antigen test, the FAST test, you can miss one-third of cases. If you're asymptomatic, and you test, again, it could miss you completely. So, so don't feel confident in the testing. Uh, it, it's a good idea. You want to test and then retest. You might come back and test once and test again. But make sure it's a PCR test. There are two of an RT-PCR and a DPCR. A digital PCR might be a little bit more accurate. But PCR basically means you're looking for particles of the virus itself. And with this, you can be sure you're getting a good result. But you know, don't don't rely on this if you don't have symptoms. The other key thing is that, you know, you'll have temperature tests. People will ask you lots of questions. But the Boston homeless, they had 900 cases and missed every single one with temperature checks and symptoms. So, you know, testing is the right thing to do, but make sure you have two tests and make sure it's a good quality PCR test. And so, Doctor, what are your final thoughts? What do you recommend to keep us safe? So what I tell people is, look, like Redfield testified before uh, Congress, the CDC director, that without a current vaccine, and hopefully it's coming fast, you know, the mask can give you more protection. If you have one of these 510K cleared masks, it's giving you 97% protection. You know, use those with confidence. And remember that now we believe this is airborne. It's the closed, poorly ventilated indoor space that is your greatest risk whether it's bars or restaurants, or even worse, homes. Homes don't have ventilation. So if you're having friends uh, over or relatives over, open all the windows, open all the doors, or you're at real risk of a super spreader event in your own home. And I would say, you know, to add to that, I think we're just becoming COVID tired. And, and I see a lot of people who started out strong and they're letting their guard down now. They're doing things that they might not have done back in April or May. So it's really just equally important to be as vigilant now as we were in the beginning. You know, I had a, a great talk uh, with our local superintendent of schools, so I will be advised on uh, COVID. She's done a remarkable job. But she did said an interesting thing. We're teaching the children resilience. Well, you have to, you know, this is a great lesson for many of us to learn. And you, you can't get tired of fatigue. You have to be resilient. You have to realize that this may be your best test in life. When you come out of this, you want to be able to look back with pride. And when I tell people, it's like we made amazing progress. That is, there is a vaccine that could be 95% effective that's coming out pretty soon. You have this new antibody treatment that is, you know, decreasing the severity of illness. There are many fewer deaths in ICU. We learned a lot. The mass technology is phenomenal. You you know, you can walk around with confidence. You're not going to get it. So, you know, we're 70 to 80% of the way back towards a normal-ish life in the sense that we be, can be confident. But, you know, be, be, be vigilant and look at this as a great test of personal character and be resilient, be a great example to people rather than being fatigued because you should be able to get out and do a lot of the things that you, you love. I get out and 
mountain bike every day and get out with my eight-year-old and, you know, take him to outdoor state play date. So look at the challenge, challenge, but be resilient, be determined to come out of this proud of how you acted. And, you know, it's also, it gives us a good opportunity, if we didn't have enough of a reason before, to combat those lifestyle diseases that we're battling, you know, diabetes and heart disease and hypertension. When we, you know, get those things in check, we give our immune system the opportunity to fight off these viruses. You know, it's such a great point. This has been such a terrible tragedy, obviously, for many minorities and for those who, who are especially, who are overweight, have diabetes or, or high blood pressure. And now is the time to address those issues. You know, I think the public health uh, community has, has failed us in many ways in terms of being able to prevent this epidemic and pandemic from hitting us so hard. But they've also failed in terms of giving good, rigorous programs for people to lose weight, control their diabetes, get their, their blood pressure down. Because, you know, it's not just a lung disease. It's also disease of all the blood vessels. And that's where the diabetes and the hypertension and the obesity all interact. You know, many patients have, they have blood clots or pulmonary amyloid. And so that's incredibly important to point out that now is also the time, you know, to, to get yourself in shape. Uh, it's a great opportunity to get more exercise than you ever have. Get, get back outside, get a good stiff hike up a hill. I have a big hill outside here in Vermont where I, I climb every day about 2,000 feet up and down, get a great workout out of it, and just determine you're going to be in the best shape of your whole life. Dr. Arnott, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for such a wonderful question, Steph. It's a real uh, honor to be on your show. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Whether you are the type of person who wears their feelings on their sleeve or you bottle your emotions up until the edge of explosion, your ability to understand and manage your emotions impacts your ability to lead. Researchers have estimated that 75% of a person's ability to succeed is linked to successfully understanding emotional intelligence. Emotions are from inside you. They are not generated from the outside. There are many inclined to believe the world happens to us instead of us happening to the world. This paradigm shift is of critical importance to the success of a business. Now imagine the power of emotional intelligence in a high-pressure crisis situation. It's even more important to be sensitive to your level of emotional intelligence in this environment. Your organization's success will depend on it. Leaders with high emotional intelligence embrace change instead of fearing it. They understand that change is a fact of life and decide to adapt quickly. They are self-aware, committed to a high level of quality in everything they do, and relate to others seeking to understand them. These qualities help the leader model resiliency for others to also adapt to change. There is no time like the present to assess our own power of emotional intelligence. If you'd like to learn more, contact me, Bertha Robinson, at 732-705-5060 or visit my website at staronprofessional.com. This is Joan Herman. Did you know that Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life publishes a free monthly digital magazine that can be read online or emailed to your inbox? Every month, nationally recognized leaders in their field provide information to educate, inspire, and motivate you. We believe in a holistic approach to life, incorporating mind, body, and spirit. Check out a copy of 24-7 magazine, visit CYACYL.com, and be sure to tell your friends. productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach On Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining us today is Eileen Lashinsky, the founder and creator of Find Body Freedom, a program developed for women who want to change their relationship with their bodies. For over three decades, Eileen battled with her own issues with body image, weight, and her relationship with food. After trying every diet on the market, she realized that her answers to her struggles were right inside her body. Since then, Eileen has been working with women to guide them to discover their own innate body wisdom and to find body freedom. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad to be here, Joan. Thank you. So, Eileen, to say that mother-daughter relationships are complex and diverse could be an understatement. So what impact does the relationship, the mother-daughter relationship, have on the way each views their body? Another wonderful question, Jones. 
And I want to remind all of us, all of us, that our mothers are the first women in our lives. So just by virtue of that alone, our mothers have a tremendous impact on us as women as it relates to our femininity, our female energy, all of that. And we, as daughters, pop out of the womb intuiting messages from our moms. We notice what she does, how she eats, what she says to herself about so many things, including about her body. And yes, we absorb these messages. And oftentimes we don't even recognize, we don't realize that we are absorbing these messages, just as mom doesn't recognize that she is sending out these subtle or not so subtle messages. And we listen to what she tells us about our bodies. Are the messages she sends to us the same as she sends to herself? And so there's something, if there is a disconnect there, there's something that doesn't sit right with us as daughters. Mom's saying this to me about my body and how I should love it and it's beautiful and perfect exactly as it is. So uh, how come she's not saying the same thing to herself about her body? And so those messages uh, can be uh, conflicting, contradictory, and we are absorbing that message as well. So, Elena, as you said, our mother's can be our greatest influence, and there's tremendous power in the messaging that she sends to a daughter. So then, with that knowledge, what should a mother be doing to teach her daughter the, you know, the right way to view her body and how to see herself? Uh, I I think that moms uh, need to take this on as part of the job description of being a mother to girls, to be a Uh, a model uh, for a healthy body image. Moms need to be role models and in so many ways um, because moms need to realize uh, what they do, what we do is more important than what we say. Again, what we do is more important than what we say because, again, if there's a disconnect, daughter is going to figure that out. And moms and daughters... You know, just for example, just the mundane things of life can shop for food and clothing together, can cook together, can go out for walks together. All of those things give mom uh, a way to be a good role model to her daughter. And it also gives daughter an opportunity to ask mom all kinds of questions about her own body as well as why we're eating these certain foods or why this particular piece of clothing doesn't look good on me, et cetera, et cetera. And so being a role model is so incredibly important. So, Eileen, you just cited a few wonderful examples of things that mothers and daughters can do to, you know, support and and learn from one another. Is there anything else that they can do to help one another? I I believe so, Joan. Um, Mothers and daughters can empathize with each other. Uh, And again, if we're, you know, as I said in my previous answer, if moms are really taking on this job of being a role model, then there's lots of opportunity for mom to be empathizing with daughter and daughter actually to be empathizing with mom. And I truly believe because I've seen this, I don't think there's anything that has more of an impact, anything that's more powerful than a daughter hearing about her mom's struggles and how she handled them for the better or even for the worse and how mom would handle that situation differently. I think that is so incredibly powerful. And as a result of that, daughters often feel more willing to open up about their own struggles and questions um, that they might have after they've heard from mom. And really, it could help daughters, uh, this process of mom telling her stories. It could help daughters find their own strengths, their own gifts, their own talents. 
and uh, moms and daughters are uh, so much more uh, than how they look. And this is a really important message in that uh, dynamic between mom and daughter. And boy, what a way to strengthen a relationship. Eileen, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Eileen, about her work, about any of her amazing programs, you can visit her website, findbodyfreedom.com. Or as always, to hear more from Eileen, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com slash Eileen. Listen to Conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Shows drop every Monday across all major podcast platforms. To tune in, visit cyacyl.com slash podcast. Start your week on a positive note. Listen to Conversations with Joan. Less than 2% of America's population volunteers to defend our nation. Though we rarely see them, we live the benefits of these heroes' sacrifices and the freedom we know and the safety we feel. Each and every day, the Gary Sinise Foundation serves our nation by honoring our defenders, veterans, first responders, and their families. We do this by creating and supporting unique programs designed to entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and build communities. The Gary Sinise Foundation has grown because the need has never been greater. Together, we'll improve the lives of thousands of American heroes and their families day in, day out, all year long. While we can never do enough to show our gratitude to our nation's defenders, our veterans, our first responders, and the families who stand by them, we can always do a little more. Join us. Visit GarySiniseFoundation.org. That's it for today's show. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Conversations with Joan, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided are the opinions of our guests and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on the site, listen to past shows on demand, read our digital magazine, take part in the book club, check out our team, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications, LLC.